This episode of the 3D Pod is brought to you by Rapid TCT. Rapid Plus TCT is North America's largest and most important additive manufacturing event. See the latest 3D technology, learn real-world additive solutions, and network with experts and peers. Save the $75 registration fee by using the promo code 3DPRINT at www.rapid3devent.com. See you there! This is the 3D Pod, your number one source for 3D printing news, analysis, and insight from 3dprint.com. Now, here are your hosts, Joris Peels and Maxwell Bogue. Hello, everyone, and welcome again to another episode of the 3D Pod. And as always, I'm here today with, uh, together with Maxwell Vogue. Hey, how's it going? Good, man, good. How are you doing? Good. Can you believe that? We've got uh, sponsorship now. I know. That's like a, that's like a big, huge step. I mean, uh, I, think, I think when we're sitting in our jets talking about when our, our podcasting <laughs> career really took off, <laughs> this would be a seminal moment. No, no, it's good. It's a good, it's a good, it means that, yeah, no, I like it. It's an honor, right? Yeah. I mean. So thank you, Rapid Plus. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Rapid TCT and uh, SME guys. Yeah, it's, it's really good. I mean, uh, I think... Uh, yeah, I think it's a really good step, and it's really good that we uh, that people are listening, and that people are, are wanting to reach those listeners. So I think that's yeah, it makes that makes you feel good. I mean, I think it, to us, it's like I don't know. I think I think we'd be happy if just we were both of us were talking. <laughs> <laughs> the, fact, the fact that people are listening is an added bonus. I think. <laughs> so today with us on the podcast is Greg Paulson from Zoometry. Zoomet- <laughs> I'm screwing that up again, Greg. Sorry. <laughs> I, I thought this was on purpose here. Yeah, I am Greg Paulson from Zometry. By the way, I will I will be at Rapid Plus TCT as well, and uh, I'm not being paid for that promotion there, but I do uh, tend to go there every year uh, with Zometry, so I'll be booted there. Well, there you go. Well, well, and why do you go to Rapid? I mean, just while you brought it up anyway, I mean, mm-hmm. well, what brings you there? Uh, yeah, I think it's... It's a good blend, right? You have a um, you have those that are interested in additive manufacturing, usually more on the professional industrial scale, uh, and then also for me because Zometry, you know, we work in all different types of technologies. You know, I get to survey new stuff coming out. Uh, you know, whether it's new direct printing or post processing needs, uh, and the the other side of it that I love is just talking to some of our suppliers because we have that partner network. So uh, it's actually a really good place for us to kind of get the best of both worlds because we have our colleagues, our manufacturing partners there, as well as cool new tech and people interested in it. Cool. Well, I'll be there as well. So I'm going to be going to like the full conference now. And uh, it's always a really nice event. It's really chill. And it's a nice uh, way to see everybody, at least the North American guys and stuff. It's a really nice, uh, busy event to, to, to meet with everyone, see everyone uh, you haven't seen in a while. So I'm looking forward uh, to, to, to seeing it. This time it's like Anaheim, which I've never been in or at. So, yeah. Oh, you can go to Disneyland. Um, well, I, I'm actually like uh, like a couple of kilometers away from Disney, well, the other Disney thing, so I don't know if I'll do that, actually. <laughs> but I don't know, maybe there's other things in Anaheim. Like, I hear they're really big on ducks and other nature. <laughs> <laughs> so, I don't know, yeah, we'll see. I don't know. But, uh, yeah, I'm going to look, look for, I'll probably be at the show, I'm right, talking uh, and list, hopefully listening uh, <laughs> for, for a couple of days straight. So, I don't know if I'll get to explore the, the uh, California and stuff. Yeah, so today, uh, Greg is with us today, a returning guest, which is great, and uh, we're going to be talking about scale. 
so, so generally, you know, if we look back at 3D printing, it started at a low volume in the lab or one guy at your business prototyping business, uh, something that, that uh, uh, was a very few parts being made. The machine would run for one part and maybe one day a week or maybe a couple days a week or something like that. And now we're going into an industry that's being used much more intensively. So all across our industry, we're seeing scale emerge. So people are going from how do we make millions of objects, as is being happening in hearing aids and as is being happening in dental and jewelry. But they're trying to serialize production for, for very many parts. And people are also looking at larger scale in the sense of, of making more affordable things and making much larger things, which simultaneously faster speeds and larger and more affordable is, is, is quite the trick to pull off. And at the same time, people are looking at houses and, 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 and ships and other objects that have been way beyond the kind of baseball-sized industry that we've been focused on. So we're going to be talking today, uh, yeah, just generally about scale. So, so what do you think of scaling 3D printing at Max? I mean, I'm all for scaling 3D printing at a higher level. And uh, I could definitely see, especially how there are some of those larger houses that do the printer farms and things like that. Um, it starts to make sense, especially if you're trying to do very specific parts um, and a very specific subset. You know, I only have like one FDM printer, um, so it can only do certain level of quality. And if I wanted to get something of a higher quality, then I could go out to that and then get several hundred of something made, which is the point and the problem with, uh, with mass production is you actually need to be in the thousands before it starts to make sense. So for small scale production, I think uh, scaling up on 3D print is print 3D printing makes a lot of sense. So because you've got experience in the toy industry making like millions of things, really. Yeah. And, and if we're looking at like the gap where we are at the moment, what are some of the things we're going to encounter? What are things, some of the things that are going to be problematic for us? As we scale into a larger, uh, I mean, <laughs> so many. So, if you think about a 3D printer, it's almost like a worker in a factory. And so each each printer can have an issue, right? And so I think getting consistency out of the printers uh, is definitely something to be examined. Um, I mean, we all know printers can make mistakes. Um, and so having a good QC system as well, be it a computer that's looking at visuals or a human that's picking up the part and looking at it or some combination of the two. Um, so I think that's going to be one of the bigger challenges is ensuring that uh, everything that's coming out of a production line of printers is actually uh, is actually correct. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. So quality, consistency, that kind of thing. Yeah. And is it also a mentality thing? I mean, I think we always kind of like it struck me if I compare it to other industries, it's kind of more of a we always think it's like some dark art of three D printing, like oh we have the magical technology. <laughs> you know, and, 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 and if we then rhyme that with like people making like 10 million cars, uh, it, it kind of seems that we kind of get lost in our own little stuff. Uh, and maybe we should maybe learn more how to integrate with, with production. Well, I think on larger scale projects, it's already happening, right? You look at, uh, the A380 from Airbus, yeah. there are pieces of that that are 3d printed. Um, admittedly you're making, you know, hundreds maybe thousands of A380s. Um, and so it makes perfect sense to print those parts, uh, especially when you're talking about weight and things like that and doing things that only a 3D printer could do. I mean, that's the magic of the 3D printer is that you can construct things in ways that you couldn't do with like injection molding or something like that. So as long as I think it's a just, it's another tool 
and the tool belt, so to speak, of uh, manufacturing um, until we have fully automated factories with robotic arms doing everything, you know, including the 3D printing, that it's it's not quite so magical. But I do think at the same time you have to consider that in other countries or in a lot of countries you can find labor at a cheaper rate than what it might cost you to set up a 3D print system. I think one of the things that, that really surprises me is if you go to China and you visit a lot of factories and stuff, just how many, how much of it is a bunch of guys just kind of lolling about and then doing a lot of stuff by hand. Yep. Yeah. And you visit, and a lot of stuff that's like, you know, I would just, uh, first, when I, before I ever went, I expected stuff to be much more process oriented. And a lot of times it's a guy with a screwdriver kind of walking around. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, is is that something you still will foresee? Like, if we're doing a mass production 3D printing feature, is that also going to be part of that scale thing? I think it's hard to avoid that until, like I say, until you have really complex systems where you have, you know, an eye in the sky and a computer saying something's going wrong here, and then either sending someone over to do it or whatnot. It also depends on what you're manufacturing and where you're manufacturing. I think, you know, manufacturing in the United States tends to be a lot more process orientated, especially on the larger scale stuff. Um, I think China and other countries like that are, are reaching systems like that. But that's also why, you know, production tends to go where stuff is cheapest. Like we have our clothing being made in, um, in India and Bangladesh and places like that because labor is very cheap there and it's still a very labor intensive process. And uh, oftentimes that's what you're chasing. And then sometimes it's cheaper and easier to throw people at the problem than to throw machines at the problem. And it's only when labor becomes too expensive do we start using these automated systems like 3D printing. Yeah. Well, we've been kind of insulated against that. I mean, in our industry, we make tens of millions of hearing aids. We make, um, uh, you know, maybe 10, 20, 30 million more uh, dental bridges and stuff. There's a ton of, 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 uh, of, you know, there's hundreds of thousands of spinal cages and all those applications. There's a ton of manual labor. Right. And, cool. uh, but since the parts are small, it just keeps happening, right? And they're expensive as well. And they're custom. I mean, that's well, the advantage. Always, right? But that's the whole, always. not all the time. But like, if you're talking about like a teeth bridge or, or uh, what's the smile company, um, that's all customized stuff, and that's that's where 3D printing makes sense. So is if you're doing very customized, uh, you know, insoles for shoes for specific people, you know, you send in a mold and then they print it out, kind of thing. That's where it really makes sense, though. It's when you're customizing something, even just a little, um, and you're keeping track of that and then shipping it to an individual customer. Yeah, and and just kind of adding in on the. Uh the dental liner thing, uh, it's really interesting. And this is, I, I think, to your point, like that high high manufacturability of stuff that is similar but not the same. So that mass configuration or mass customization is a power, you know, powerful tool that Additive can do. Yeah. But just on de on dental aligners, what I'm actually printing when I do it, like if I'm building a dental aligner aligner factory using Additive manufacturing, I am essentially printing thermoform patterns. And I've, those those 3D prints are not going in the mouth. Uh, um, for most of these applications, it is a thermoform pattern progressively made. So for every set of teeth, you may make you know 12, 24 of them for different progressions as you are forming the teeth essentially into a straight smile. And then you are doing a thermoform on top, and there is a lot of computer-aided tools now that will help do a small CNC maneuver around that thermoform to actually cut the liner 
uh, perfectly so that the thing can then so that then that thermoform piece can get, be put into a package and this is week one then week two week three week four etc and and sent out so the product actually uh, being used is augmented and able to do this mass configuration scale by 3D printing, but it's not a 3D printed product. I believe that for hearing aids, they can be 3D printed direct uh, for for that need, but for stuff like aligners, uh, it's a very harsh environment uh, in your mouth, and uh, and uh, those have a little bit uh, uh, higher levels of clearance. And and to do to do it right, sometimes you just want to use a polymer that you're already used to. So it's it's very interesting that as it's an augment, but it sometimes isn't as direct as it's advertised, right? Uh, as we as we promote it. Totally. I mean, I think indirect has a lot of sense, especially if you're working with stereolithography with the resins, uh, can be very problematic uh, for end use, especially if you, if you would uh, keep it in your mouth for a long term or, or longer than 24 hours, longer than a couple of hours. Um, I, I still find SLI because of that like a, a primarily a very problematic technology and end use application. But um, I think I think what's interesting to me is always if we look at the, the success stories. I think the success stories are like first off the Invisalign case. There is still a ton of, of manual labor in, in in verifying these parts and mm-hmm. uh, looking at the software, making sure that the right um, uh, the right positive mold part gets printed out. Uh, so it's on the software front, which maybe a lot of people would assume is completely automated. There's a ton of work being done by operators, um, and then also there's a you know you, you go in through the steps. I mean you know every single step, like you take the thing out of the printer. Well, first you need to set up the file. Then uh, there's some machine limited machine maintenance, but then you need to take the part of the printer. You need to cut it loose from the platform, uh, uh, cut off and file down the the supports, and then you need to wash it. Then you need a UV flash it, uh, maybe even post cure, put another real agent on it, uh, uh, or something like that. And then every single time, there's a, a, a person dragging these parts around the factory. So it strikes me that that, 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 that there's like a lot of manual labor in there. There's maybe a bit of hidden manual labor in that entire process. Yeah, and it's interesting. It's the reverse of what we were talking about with with molding, where I am, uh, or even a lot of times fabric make, making tailoring, where a lot of that labor is on that that uh the tail end uh you know kitting assembly etc uh where for additive because the printer is reading and interpreting the cad file and doing its best to create that in a physical product uh a lot of that is the digital maintenance the upfront uh input that i'm I'm creating and i can i can even tell you i mean build planning itself uh, so you know we we make thousands of thousands of parts and you have full-time planners that are you know, digitally creating builds and looking at every single part, uh, doing file fixings, file checks, uh, and then orienting the part in in a way in which it'll build the best, uh, given the technology and platform. Uh, so yeah, there's there's a lot of digital maintenance. You're not you know you're not taking a screwdriver around, but you're you know using your digital tools to uh, create a file that can actually print well with a pretty predictable amount of success. A lot of people have concerns of, you know, oh, this is going to result in, like, job losses. And it's going to result in people having to learn new skills and, mm-hmm. and new jobs open anytime you introduce these new systems. And, yeah, old jobs go away, so you have to adapt with the time, so to speak. Um, but I think it's still, it speaks to the fact that you still need people involved in all of this process. 
Yeah, I'll tell you. I mean, I think if I was working on a factory floor, I'd be doing my darndest to learn any kind of thing in statistics or something. I'm taking some like night classes of statistics or something, because the quality control element is where we see, especially in three D printing, because all the individualized parts are meant to be in a range, but you you there's still no real way to check all of them. You can take like an Alicona scanner and do surface roughness and dimensional accuracy, or you can CT scan it or whatever. But there's no there's no like you know QC quality control kind of machine that will test all these parts. So that kind of thing, especially in our industry, will be yeah still pretty difficult to do. Yeah. Yeah, because you can't use a jig on a custom part when every part is, no, exactly. is different. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, for example. I mean, how, how do you guys do? Like, I mean, the, and also, what we also see is that, that, that we're doing a lot of different certification regimes and we're doing a lot of different production for these different certification regimes. I think, um, and that, that also, I think, has a lot of impact. Um, I think Greg mentioned that, I think, uh, even last time. I think uh, we were talking about something similar. You know, if we look at another case, uh, if we look at the, the, the hearing aids, you know, there's also a lot of manual labor in there, and there's also a lot of setup in in uh, in planning the right hearing aid or putting the the hearing aid form uh, or the, the actual electronics of it in the right in in the, the hearing aid itself. I mean, but should we be focusing if we want to scale? Should we? Well, there's like three options I have really, and I'm just curious what you know because I don't think we'll ever know the right answer really. Is should we be focusing on these mass customization, high-end plate applications? that have a lot of manual labor and that need a lot of oversight and are in a higher regulatory regime because that's going to be the most profitable in the long run, right? So should we be focusing on scaling to millions of medical parts, right, as we're doing like in titanium uh, for orthopedics and spinal cages and stuff? Or should we really be focusing on scaling like as in like actual manufacturing, like making toy parts and making stuff actually like cost uh, cents? Yeah, you know, so to me, those are two fundamental choices. Yeah, and I think to your point, like, yeah, that's high value, highly customized. So when we talk about uh, Airbus or Boeing and those components, there are machines that their entire life will be creating one SKU, like one uh, particular stock number for these components. And it is tuned, it's environment, the quality, everything is controlled to control every minute detail to give a certain performance out of that part through that, through that machine platform. Uh, whether it's ducting or whether it's the actual like DMLS uh, um, inserts for the for the engine, but you are basically creating a bunch of parallel machines, making a full bill of materials for that, and it's very high investment. But when you look at those high value things like aerospace, uh, it pays off because every pound I save, I save like you know x hundred of thousands of dollars per year of fuel on my on my uh, flight components, or I reduce foreign object debris. All these things that you know, I'm I'm mitigating. A risk uh, for a highly, you know, how do I say, it, a highly sensitive project, uh, high liability project, and that's the same with medical implants too. Like I've I've been to factories where they take the net shape of the 3D printed metal, and then there's about seven CNC machines uh, in a row to take that femoral implant and go and do op one, then op two, then all the way through op seven to actually have a finished implant at the end of op seven. So there's a lot of post processing, but again, you have that. High, value, high value, high liability. On the other side of things, in kind of the world that I'm working in is, how can I get a price so competitive with additive manufacturing that it gives my clients uh, aha moment with maybe this can be produced in additive for its lifetime versus scaling to another process like injection molding. 
because you know we offer you know machining, molding, sheet metal, all these other options as well. So when you're talking about the value add production, uh, sometimes my my value add is saying, hey, this is where we have the break even point. So if you're looking to make 25 a year, stick with additive uh, for this part this big. But if you're looking to make you know uh, 2,500 a year, you're going to break even within like a year on uh, doing uh, doing this injection molding, and uh, and so like how can I get the price because I don't need tooling with additive manufacturing? How can I get that price so you know reasonable and and so low that it becomes a no brainer to design around that process, like design in like laser centering or multi jet fusion. But wouldn't uh, if you do that, won't then you kind of on the way to more uh, uh, commoditized parts find you know lower cost vendors that can then do a good enough job of doing this this part right, and will then then have an even lower price. And will you then twenty years from now, you know, is there a business for you, right? If you do embark on the, the, the this low volume path or this high volume low low margin path. Meanwhile, if we would do medical device, it's really difficult, it's really hard, and, and 20 years from now, I still have a beautiful business because, like, you know, the health system, the insurance company, all these guys will let me make my margin as long as I don't mess up making these implants. Isn't it fundamentally a better business? And if we're looking at scale, yeah, why would we go in, like, you know, a lot of manufacturing businesses have, like, margins, like, 3%, 2%, like, these these. A lot of these contract manufacturing businesses have single-digit margins, and literally, if their customer pays two weeks later, they're going to be in trouble. Um, you know, and then meanwhile, you know, you've got a, a medical device business that has some of the highest margins you you get in any kind of stuff. Like you're talking like 40, 50 percent or higher, depending on what what part of the chain you're in. Sometimes even multiple people in the chain have like 30, 40 percent margin uh, in these businesses, um, and they're growing. You know, look at medical device. We're getting people that are richer people. You know, the one billion or two billion of richest people on the planet are living longer. They're getting heavier, right? You used to only have one hip implant. Now, uh, you're going to get two hip implants, you know, because you're going to live an extra ten years. And so, um, you know, these kind of businesses to me have a huge growth. There's like a confluence of these really big mega trends coming together, and that, and to me, that's a much more protectable, defensible business in this high regulatory environment. And then, okay, maybe we don't scale as as well as injection molding has. But maybe we're not the technology for that, you know? I think my, my real answer there is why not both? Uh, but it's definitely two separate business paths, yeah. right? Uh, to your yeah. point, you, you just said it yourself, high regulatory. There is there is a lawsuit behind every part done wrong in, this, in that industry where, yeah. for example, a pen cap, you know, or something that, you know, is very low risk uh, may, uh, you know, it, it may just be a little tight or something like that. And it's, it's not, it's not the end of the world. So you can still have commoditized, you know, additive production, but you're right. It's, uh, if I have a high regulation behind it, then there's a lot of steps and a lot of paperwork to, uh, make that, to, to kind of prevent it from being, uh, that cheap, you know, my, my biggest thing on, on production on this, you know, commoditized plastic parts is, you know, you know, where's it going? How's it going to live? How long does it need to live? And also the question for me is when will your rev change? So, a big decision for me on whether to move to molding or stick with additive processes is actually the revision life cycle of my parts because you can build a tool and any tool, honestly, even prototype tools can can often go beyond fifty thousand units. Even when you say like, oh, it's a you know a five thousand unit tool, really these the aluminum will typically be stronger than the than the mold or than the plastic that you're molding unless you have like really uh, sharp features to it. So I have a tool that has this life. 
But if I know that after my Gen 1 comes out, I'm going to have a you know market of 750 people that will review it before I do a rev, it may not be uh, as, as valuable for me to invest in hard tooling where I can uh, test my market and evaluate my, my revision and change it without any real repercussion uh, using data manufacturing. But isn't that also like, well, that's what we, when I was working for Showplays and stuff, we, we figured it out by, we couldn't really comprehend our competitors and they never understood us, you know, because we were trying to make everything really cheap and they were literally convinced that we were doing some kind of like, uh, you know, evil stuff or some kind of really horrible stuff just because we were looking at this much more as kind of an easy jet but stuff the airplane kind of approach, you know? They were like, there's a catch. And like, well, in the beginning, we were totally losing tons of money, of course, per order. But but, but the, 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 after a while, the idea was we were up to scale. And then at a full scale, we, we, we made all these problems go away, or a lot of them. Um, and all of a sudden, we were way more efficient to them. I mean, if you, I understand your example. It's a really rational example. Of, of going, of making a rational business decision at the right time, but to choose the right technology. But you know, if I'm a vendor and I'm not set up to to to, to make a thousand of these tooling parts in a low cost way, then then I'm going to all of a sudden price price myself out of the market, right? So yeah, I think the the problem with doing both at the same time is, yeah, you can do both, but if you have the wrong cost structure. If you have the wrong ideas about everything, you know what I mean? You know, you guys have an, up, an upload, automated upload tool that really lowers your costs, right? That also means that you're going to be working on automating that entire process, you know? Yes, now you have a bunch of guys that are doing these decisions, but there's some guy with an algorithm, some AI kiddo trying to figure out how to, like, get rid of these people, essentially, right? So I think that's 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 because, you know, you, you, you simply, as a business, have this idea of saying, no, we're going to, like, whatever, we're going to Amazon this or whatever, right? And I think if you're, on the other hand, if you say we have account managers and we have engineers to interface with customers, then maybe you can take on that tooling job, but then you won't be able to produce it, uh, you know, come down the road if somebody wants 100, you know? Yeah, and I think uh, that's something when we do tooling, people are often less aware of is, is setup fees. Like when you, uh, if you do want a short batch run, a lot of times a setup fee can be in the hundreds of dollars. Uh, and for a very large tee, it could be even, you know, much more than that. And, uh, and those are, yeah, well, st steel and the labor to actually, cause every, yeah. every time I take it, every time I time a pool mold, which is when I'm taking that mold, taking it off the machine. Cause I want to keep my machine running and making parts, even if it's not your job, uh, I have to store that tool. And then when I, op uh, when I am ready to set up the job again, I'm going to go open up that tool, run maintenance on the tool, uh, make sure that everything's running, you know, do my test shots. You can't, you don't just put it back in run in the first thing that pops out is going to be the part that I'm going to ship to my customer. You usually run some shots through, make sure that all the fills, all the settings, parameters are working right. And then uh, I'm making my production runs and that, that costs money. These tools are, you know, 450 pounds sometimes and I'm moving cranes. I'm, you know, uh, doing a lot of manual labor to set this up, you know, I'm spending half a day on that. So, uh, yeah. you know, there, there's, there's a big fee for doing just 100 uh, with, with yeah. mold tooling a lot of times. Yeah. yeah, but I think I think but the interesting thing to me is like okay, Shapeways for example, we said we had a volume based pricing model in the beginning. It was really simple. It was just upload part, and then you get a price based on volume. We made that so the user could understand. You know, this an apple is so much, and a watermelon is so much, right? And so fast forward like three, four years after that, and people were like telling me like the pricing model doesn't make sense, right? Because if you uh, upload these large objects the, the volume is much larger actually so so actually like it is not fair and it doesn't make sense and, we, and I was like it doesn't matter 
right? It doesn't matter that, 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 yeah, of course, if we were to perfect the pricing model, we'd come up with something really different. we come up with a surcharge per part, and a surcharge for difficult-to-release parts, and a surcharge for things that we could, like a vase, for example, where you could put a lot of objects inside of it, an SLS, is infinitely cheaper, not infinitely, but significantly cheaper than a ball, right, which you could yeah. put anything inside right. of it, right? We call those build um, killers, uh, by the way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Build, build one, killers, one, man. One build. Yeah. In one build, it's like three, which costs you, let's say 3K, depends on what you're doing. But let's say it's a Formiga B110, whatever, and the build's 3K or whatever. Mm -hmm. Then, then, and that's, that, that'll take your machine and take it offline for like a day or two days or three days or whatever. So there's like a lot of potential earnings that are missed there. And there's a lot of other stuff that, 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 that you'll never get that back at opportunity cost of that, that one day with that one part from Ball, you know? But I think it's it's whatever is your attitude as a business that determines whether you want the perfect pricing model, right? Or you're just saying, oh, no, no, I want to be Walmart, you know? And to me, that's that's the, the way you position it and the way you want to – if you want to be Walmart, you're going to get rid of, like, all the stuff doesn't matter because your, your goal is Walmart. You're, you're you know? working a, por think, a portfolio approach. So you're saying like yeah. overall, like my, my portfolio hits this. But yeah, if, if I made soccer balls in every single order, then my price my price portfolio would definitely change uh, yeah. uh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, but to me, it's like, uh, like for example, this is one thing. Uh, for example, at one point, uh, I need to like kind of semi nominalize this, but at one point I was, <laughs> I was working somewhere and I decided what the best thing for us to do uh, was to fire a bunch of our customers. Right, we went to these customers and we found out that 20% of our customers are costing 80% of the, the, the customer service time, right? Yep. Uh, so, uh, and then I found out that we would need like 200 customer service people if we were to hit our financial targets. So I said, you know what? Uh, we're going to keep the customers that make us working harder, that drive us to excellence, because that's good. Those guys are annoying, but they cost a lot of time, but they make us better. And the other ones, they're gonna, I'm going to get rid of all of them. So I, I sent them an email. I said, sorry, we can't deal with uh, you we're not good enough or we're not customizable enough to deal with with uh, your high level of service that you demand and i got rid of them right and and some management did not appreciate this i said no but it's logical because our goal is to to become you know uh, much more efficient so we don't need these people yes there are a lot of revenue yes they're part of the but we'll get rid of them and that's not something you would do is if you're if you're not focused on just becoming on growth you're, you're building the box, right? Like you're like right. you're redefining the box in which the work that yeah. you know so and so company takes on. They're like, this is our sweet spot. This stuff is outside of our yeah. sweet spot. So it's, it's nothing with you. It's just our box is redefined. You know, it's not that the whole industry is going to do this. It's it's one company is going to try this, and another company is going to try that, and they're going to make a model yeah. that works for them or not. And then uh, those that succeed are going to prove a model, and then everyone else is going to copy that model. So it's, it's yeah. the pioneers that are going to. You know, say like, you know what? We're not going to do tooling anymore. We're whoever GE or something, and we've figured out that the cost model makes sense if we do it this way versus that way, or some hybrid of the two. Well, yeah. and, and just kind of uh, going on that, and you know, talking a little bit about on on Zometry's uh, business, it's really interesting because we can go as simple as print the part, right? But you can go more custom. And to our advantage, we have that manufacturing network, so we have folks on this network who do like that custom and you do see that cost repercussion come up. So if you're just adding inserts or something to a 3d print, um, you'll see the pricing change. Uh, you just add, you know, add two inserts and you'll see the pricing update, uh, online 
uh, instantaneously. But if you're adding things like finishing or adding things like sanding or say, for example, you're doing a clear SLA print, like I'm making accurate clear view and I want to make it look like a safety glasses lens, you know, completely transparent, um, you know, we're adding that custom expense for essentially sanding and polishing and doing that. And, you know, I know this topic is on production here. And that's when scalability becomes really challenging is the second that I'm adding a labor, you know, to the, to the parts. Oftentimes, labor is more expensive than the part will ever be. Uh, yep. And so your scalability yep. changes. But, uh, yeah, we, we have that. So you get these really commoditized produ- like production pricing at, um, you know, print and, print and chip uh, level. But the second that you're adding labor, you do see that price repercussion. So you can – you kind of have again, like I'm always a I'm always a middle path. I'm you know very Buddhist middle path on this. Uh, you know why not both? Or like there's always a, you know there's always options out there. I, I think the other thing, and I know uh, Max, you were talking about this a little bit. The from a manufacturer standpoint, you know, is it worth my while to take this low paying job uh, yeah. or something that's lower margin? Because my typical work is like this. One of the things I think that we've we've had uh, you know advantage of. Uh, is that we can give our manufacturers on our network um, a lot of work at once to help fill their builds or fill open capacity in their builds um, or open capacities in their machine shops, et cetera. Uh, and often that work is at a lower price, but they they get it without working themselves. Like there's no overhead on their side. They're literally clicking accept. And so they're not, they don't have to hire a sales team to take that work. They don't have to do this. So you're able to get this kind of win of a, you know, of a production manufacturing price while also the win of having like a more distributed network because they're, you're able to, to uh, you know, if you're say I'm running most fusion, maybe I have a hundred dollar minimum normally on my parts. But uh, if I, if I through zometry, I may not have a minimum there because I'm taking on, you know, a hundred parts a day uh, to, to go. So like there's, it's, it's not one order with a hundred parts. It's, you know, a hundred individual orders. And so it's a, you know, it's a little bit of a different uh, approach, but it, it gets the same means. You get a better portfolio for everybody. There's also an agency dilemma, of course, that if, if you want to kick me out, if I'm a vendor working on a platform and all of a sudden you, I get a low rating or something, you might all of a sudden kick me out and then I'll lose that volume. And I might lose like, you know, Sue, I've heard, uh, I've hired just to deal with your orders or, or who's a part of her job is dealing with your orders. And also I'm, I won't have the capacity to replace those orders. Not even if I don't have it, but I don't have the marketing guy or I don't have the customers, you know, because they're so dependent on you. I don't usually see that happen because we have more carrots than we have sticks. Uh, but yeah. there is, there's obviously like is a part made to spec and is it delivered on time. And, uh, you know, you get, you get that feedback. I know we're going a little bit more and more into the zombie specific stuff than, than production, uh, but, uh, you know, we have, we have a feedback loop going in on per order that is something called a partner success score. So you're able to see the work as it goes, as it goes through. And there's, there's definitely, we have spot bonuses and other things that happen, um, as you maintain, you know, a success score of like, you know, 90 something or, or up to, up to a hundred is kind of like a grade up to a hundred, uh, as well as, you know, if performance is declining, there's, you know, there's, uh, pips and other programs involved where our, our partner team will help nurture you through because I think what I like is that we have experts in almost every field which is great for me because I get to you know have like cooler talk with them and and uh, geek out on different subjects that I'm learning about uh but at the same time they're able to call up you know that that shop and say all right what are we running into I get it okay so you know tell me about your supply chain and we we could help figure out 
some of the challenges they have. And and ultimately, to your point, like sometimes it's it it may not be a good fit. But I think our our peak performers like really may you know have figured out uh, how we fit within their system, and it's been you know a win win. If we're looking at like this scaling business in a broader thing, I mean, we have three print services or service companies. Now we're seeing a lot of like GKN huge defense automobile oh, now yeah. powder making now also polymer making parts company that is making a big uh, move in this business we've got early which is like doing a lot of stuff in the aerospace yeah. so we've got kind of dedicated 3d printing businesses or businesses that are dedicated to the manufacturing element now then we've also got companies like striker where strikers made a conscious decision to say you know what we're going to take this inside in-house and we're going to do all this technology ourselves and then there's the other people that just like really say like, look, this is just like a manufacturing step, you know, why would you have a different vendor? It's not strategic, you know, it's just a part of what we're already doing. So it should already be just like, you know, just drop it inside the supply chain. Why would the hell would you treat this any differently? I mean, to me, those are three very, very different scenarios. I don't know if you agree with that. Or I think, again, going to that highly regulated, um, it does become a little bit more desirable to take some in-house because then I, I have a certain uh, level of control over the environment, the shop environment, and quality procedures uh, on my time. You know, So like I, I can you know, walk to the shop and see. And I think to your point, like uh, GE Additive, well, you know, why was GE Additive found? Well, GE Additive, uh, they did the math. And they're like, wow, look at these amazing savings that we could do. So they acquired Morris Technologies and got this, you know, uh, a whole row of uh, DMLS machines with some of the best, you know, DMLS operators uh, at the time out there. And then they're like, okay, well, Morris, you're no longer take any external work because we need you 100% for GE. And then they realized for all our engines and our production to actually win, there's not enough capacity in the world to produce what we need to do. So we need to buy an OEM. And we need to buy a powder, powder metallurgy company, and we need to actually make the machines to make our business run. And I mean, no, not everybody's a GE, right? Where you can actually acquire uh, like a machine making company, but they did that purposefully because they did the math. And for their particular application, like DMLS, one machine is not a super scalable platform. But you know, having a thousand machines, you know, that's how you scale a lot of these boutique, especially XY build plate style platforms. Uh, for 3D printing, uh, you you need to have parallel manufacturing, and that's what they realized they needed to do to do anything in a timely manner, and they they executed on that. So highly regulated, like taking in house, doing that. I mean, that is 100% that direction. And then, but uh, like I said, for stuff that becomes more commoditized, you could do much more distributed approach. Uh, and even us, you know, when we have when we do specialized, highly regulated manufacturing for zometry, you know, our, our, our manufacturing partner list is is much more narrow uh, because not everybody can do that type of work uh, or hit those type of certifications. So we have, you know, private, you know, specific networks for those type of applications. Um, so Critical integration. And- <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, think, I think you don't see it being drawn because we always think what we're doing is special because it's exciting and it's new and it's and 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 we think it's great, of course, because we're in in this industry. But but I do think there is a lot of people that kind of just maybe just see us as not as special as we think we are, <laughs> which means that maybe we're not strategic, or maybe we're only strategic for Striker and GE, right? Or Striker GE, you know, and maybe the the. Uh, the rocket uh, kind of rocket, any kind of aero, aero yeah, space yeah. kind of stuff, and orthopedics, and then beyond that, maybe we're not strategic. Maybe that's our whole industry. 
I mean, I wouldn't be bad. Give me aero engines and orthopedics. I mean, I think we'd be super happy with that forever, right? Uh, but, 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 you know, maybe it doesn't beyond that. It doesn't add it to really, you know, isn't strategic and shouldn't really scale and should just be like, you know, just a machine in a corner somewhere. Making prototypes. I, I yeah, think we were making, or, yeah. Yeah, I, I think time Go ahead. is really what it comes down to and, and machines yeah. improvements and stuff like that. I mean, 20 years ago, it's not like every factory had a 3D printer just for the prototyping purposes. Today, uh, I've never seen a factory that doesn't have a 3D printer at the very yeah. least for prototyping. So yeah. it's, it's slowly working its way in. I mean, these are ancient systems, so to speak. We've been many mass production producing in this manner since the industrial revolution and so it, it takes time to like re-up these things and rethink how to do these systems differently um so yeah time okay and then and one, one other thing i think we haven't touched on this i think it's important i, I think we, we'd scale okay we we're talking like, like scale as in doing lots of different products doing higher product mixed products and doing it at, at, at scale in the millions or, or numbers. But also I think one bigger problem is that most of the stuff, uh, the material I used to always do like, you know, a marble to, a, I think it was a marble to a golf ball. Later on material, I started focusing much more on like a marble to a softball. I think mm -hmm. right now I'm looking, you know, we can make, you know, competitively maybe marble to volleyball sized objects depending on the application, but it still has to be kind of like, you know, it has to be semi high value. Meanwhile, in the media, we're you know everybody's three D printing houses for ten dollars in two hours, um, and and <laughs> so so you know we, we still have a long ways to go if we're looking at you know on the one hand a lot of the things that are required in the manufacturing world can be printed within you know within striking distance of current build volumes depending on the technology right you know we're talking about like if we have like a I don't know whatever a fifty by fifty by fifty centimeter box which we have for you know FDM partially SLS, but not for DMLS, you know, you know, if we, if we envision that box, I'm pretty sure a lot of the things we need to print for manufacturing can fit in that box. On the other hand, there's a ton of objects in the world that, that are much, much larger than that. They're much more human-sized objects, or even beyond that, building-sized objects. Do you guys see that scale happening as well in, in, in larger? Because on the one hand, the way I always explain to people is like, I can draw a circle quite well close to my body, but if I have to reach way beyond my body with my arm and a pen and, and draw a circle a meter away, it gets really tiring, it gets really difficult, and, and, and you know, the, the, the same thing is attenuated, I think, with a, with a printer. Do you guys see this also happening in larger objects, or...? I think that's tougher because uh, I think tech, that's technology-dependent. Uh, for example, FDM, I could very easily get on a Fortis 900, which is that like I, I know you're talking centimeters, but like I'll, I'll talk uh, feet here. But two foot by three foot by three foot is a Fortis uh, 900 platform. Uh, but if I'm really taking that that uh, that space, I could run a print for 11 days. I, I can yeah. literally print and make one part that takes 11 days to make. Uh, and now that being said, that's usually 13,000 layers, and there's a lot of you know caveats. But still, like uh, that's how long it takes to make these big parts. Now. If that's cheaper and sooner than the alternative, then we have a value proposition. Uh, but a lot of times, uh, you'll find that other types of fabrication methods can get those results uh, possibly sooner, or even maybe with a better surface finish right now. So I think that to, to Max, Max points time, like there's there's technologies that are coming out that are getting much more um, interesting. Uh, but uh, um, for scaling large parts. 
there's there's a uh, you know, which if I can't do it in powder bed and my platform's not too big, uh, then I have a lot of problems because I'm building and then kind of stuck on an XY platform and I'm depositing a material that may be, you know, uh, I'm going back to millimeters now, but half a millimeter thick and, you know, layer by layer, a millimeter thick or sometimes, you know, you know, big area additive manufacturing, maybe like, you know, two centimeters thick, but either way it is, uh, um, it's something that has a challenge scaling with size. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, when the I'm economics sure. make sense, I mean, at the end of the day, when the economics makes sense, that's what's when, when the person will buy it from us. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, and it, you also remember we're talking about one process and a whole system. Like, you know, we're talking about just making the parts. You still need either people or robots to then put all those parts together. Yes. Um, so, you know, Basically, what we're talking about is like injection molding or whatever molding versus 3D printing, and that's just one step in the entire manufacturing process. Um, So for scaling, it just needs to come down to the point where when 3D printers, however you want to define them, beat molding systems in both time and cost, that's when you're going to see them starting to scale at a much larger and a much faster rate. Mm Mm-hmm. But isn't that always like? Does it either need some crazy visionary guy to do it before it makes sense, or that it needs some kind of intermediate cost driver to get us there? I mean, you know what I mean? Like the, yeah, the, I think we already had the crazy visionary by yeah. inventing yeah. the 3D printing, and now yeah. it's the intermediary steps to get it to the cost driving step. Yeah, but I to mean, me, yeah, that's, that's a crucial thing. I mean, yeah. yeah. I mean, maybe it's not come along and create some crazy new thing that's like, ah, this solves everything. But then it'll still take yeah. ten years before it gets implemented on a large scale. Yeah, it's a, I literally believe in this Jevons effect. This this idea that if you have more water, then you will use more water. Uh, like for example, like yeah. first you have running water and you're only washing yourself. You use about like I don't know a liter a day or something. And then because there's running water in every house, some guy invents like a sink and everybody starts washing their their, their dishes in the sink and then you use up three liters of water, right? Meanwhile, then somebody else is like, you know what, we have this running water, we can do a washing machine, and you use five liters of water, right? All of a sudden, everyone showers, and you don't shower once a week, you shower every every day, right? And you don't shower for one minute, you shower much longer, and then, then that enables, like, this structure, then all of a sudden, you're using 100 liters of water a day, or even more, and then somebody comes up with flush toilets, which is, like, the best and the worst thing we've ever come up with, right? Um, you know, so, so I think, in, in, to me, I think it's really interesting that now the media is talking about houses, and everybody's thinking, oh, my next house will be 3D printed, as well as my grandmother, right, on the bioprinting front. Um, you know, everything is going to be 3D printed. And then we're kind of, but we're trying to focus on golf balls. We're not even, we can't do a golf ball. That's a good example. Uh, but we're focusing on little stuff that, you know, I couldn't even competitive. We could competitively maybe do doorknobs, but probably they wouldn't work, you know. So, I'm, you know, to me, the crucial bits of technology is that will get us there. You know, the, the things that will, the thousand you know, thousand dollar lamps that everyone will buy just so there is capacity, you know? Yeah. yeah. It's, it's chicken and egg. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. I, uh, to me, it's like, you know, the IKEA is not using it is, is one thing that, that, that we don't have that scale, but that some designer makes like a $10,000 lamp that gets us to that is like the crucial thing that will it'll, it'll kind of push us forward. And that, I still, but, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm observing, you know, we're seeing some of the crazy coming through, uh, and I, I've seen, I've seen decisions being made where you know overall portfolio may be a little bit more price, uh, expensive to three D print something, 
but the perceived inventory storage yeah. cost you know so like yeah it's it's always like from an industrial like from an engineering or industrial level there's other weird like weird factors in the supply chain that may make it more valuable even though it's a hidden cost uh, to that uh, but it, it, like it's you know I, I'm still sitting by you know there's some stuff that is, is very viable and, and is being done right now uh, and uh, other things whether it's size or print time um, or surface finish which we didn't even, you know that's a whole other conversation you know these these things are still challenges that uh, are being stepped up to in the additive manufacturing size but at that point even you know cosmetics a lot of times it's like great we got the cosmetics I can only build up six inches <laughs> then you're you know you you have to start working that that side up further and further too so it's incremental but there's uh you know the viability is happening but yeah it's, it's probably gonna be the next decade of uh of processing and, and innovation to really make it uh right right next to a lot of these other processes uh versus a stopgap or you know a uh, intermediary solution you bring up a good point with uh like almost on-demand printing and uh, the the parallel to look at is on-demand publishing with the book mm. printing, like, yeah. you know, making physical books and uh, how that wasn't even something that you could consider 20 years ago. And now some people are doing it, but not everyone is doing it. And it's just the economics of it that really determine who's doing what. And, you know, the independent publisher can do on-demand printing easily and you can therefore order a book through Amazon and then they just print it when you need it. Um, and I think you're right that the supply chain system also makes a lot of sense in the cost because housing something in a warehouse costs money, you know, and all that supply chain aspect of it is also going to drive uh, the determination of when it flips over to make economic sense. All right, guys. Yeah. Uh, so we, we've solved the problem, me. right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> High five. We're, we're done. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, uh... No, I think I think uh, there was a lightning discussion. I think it's well, it's a fun discussion. I mean, I think I think in the beginning we knew we wouldn't solve the problem and we wouldn't right. get uh, actually anywhere, but we would be illuminating. I think to a certain degree, at least that's that's what I think we hope we did. Uh, going through the issues, um, uh, and just generally, uh, I thought that was fun. I'd like to really thank uh, Greg Paulson for being here today, uh, and also yeah, thanks again for Max as well. We've had a really really great uh, 3D pod, and uh, keep listening and uh, and uh, thank you very much for listening and uh, and have a great day. Thanks guys. You've been listening to the 3D Pod. For more information on what you just heard or to subscribe, visit www.3dprint.com or follow us at. 3dprint underscore com.